At Online MedEd, we walk you through every topic in detail, so you're ready for the boards and the wards. In this lecture on preoperative evaluation, what we want to consider are those things that would preclude someone from having elective surgery. If someone has an emergent surgery, they go. If they don't have that surgery, they die, they go to surgery anyway. You can still use these things to predict the risk of death and heart attack, but in an emergency situation, they have to go. In an elective case, what you want to be able to do is assess their risk and then be able to reduce that risk before they go to surgery. Go through a couple of organ systems and we'll see how a preoperative evaluation works. By far the most important organ system is the heart. And what you care about is perioperative death and MI. The two things that are really bad for surgery are going to be someone who has decompensated heart failure with an EF less than 35%. People who are decompensated and fluid overload have a 75% chance of dying. So don't do surgery on heart failure patients who are volume overloaded. The other one is an MI. And it is best to wait six months. If you wait only three months following an MI, you have a 40% chance of dying. That risk is reduced to 6% at six months. So if someone has had a myocardial infarction, they really should not be going under anesthesia and they should not be having surgery unless that surgery is cardiac to fix the problem. When you evaluate someone, you're going to be using what's called the Goldman Index. Do not memorize the Goldman Index. Just recognize that the more points you have, the worse off the person is. And also, you're going to compare their cardiovascular risk to their functional status. You do this in real life. You won't have to do this on the test. Instead, what I want you to look for are those things that give you the most points on the Goldman Index. If they have JVD, which is a surrogate for an ejection fraction less than 35%, you don't go to surgery. If they've had a recent MI, they don't go to surgery. Those are the two things that matter the most. When working up somebody for surgery, what you want to do is start with an EKG. Most people will not require any more workup. But if you are getting a vignette question about a coronary artery disease patient or a heart failure patient, you want to get the echo to evaluate for heart failure and do a stress versus a cath. To treat them, if they've had an MI, you will do either a stent or a cabbage. Wait the six months and then reevaluate. If they have heart failure, you want to maximize their heart failure by putting them on beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, and if they're volume overloaded, diuresing them, usually with loop diuretics. Heart's the one you got to know the most about. The next important system is the lungs. And the thing is that most people consider the lungs the thing that oxygenates. Well, it turns out that ventilation is far more important in surgery than oxygenation. Because the anesthesiologist can always just turn up the oxygen a little bit during the surgery in order to bring up the oxygen levels. But if you've got crappy lungs and you can't ventilate, you can't get rid of CO2, you're going to worsen acidosis. And when you do surgery, you're in the belly, you're mucking things around, 
the acid-base status gets wildly deranged. So you want to be able to control the respiratory acid with ventilation. The patients you should consider pulmonary evaluation in are those with bad lungs. Smokers, those with obstructive lung disease like COPD or asthma, and those with interstitial lung disease, now called DPLD. The diagnosis is going to involve pulmonary function testing to make sure that they have the ability to oxygenate and ventilate. And then at the day of, you might get an ABG. What you're looking for is an elevated CO2 or a decrease in oxygen that might make you think, huh, I need to reevaluate this. This person may not be safe to go. The treatment comes down to giving oxygen for low oxygen levels. No brainer. But more importantly, you want to be able to control the underlying disease. So you might do inhalers. But the thing you got to know for the boards and the wards is smoking. Smoking cessation is always the right answer. But when you stop smoking immediately after, you increase bronchial secretions. So if you're going to tell your patient to stop smoking for a surgery, you need to do it eight weeks before. And use a nicotine patch along the way to help them with their cravings. The liver is the master control center for metabolism, and it is really important. What you're looking at here is the MELD score and the child's pew. In medicine, we use the MELD score much more often. It tells us how sick the liver is with a number, and it changes day to day. And it's also what we use for the transplant list. Surgeons usually use the child's pew. How sick is that liver? A, B, or C? A, not that bad. C, pretty bad. You will not have to calculate, but just recognize child's pew C means they're dead. Child's pew A means they're good to go. But you're going to look at the synthetic function of the liver. So you're going to look at albumin, clotting factors via the PT and PTT, the total bilirubin, and then symptoms of ascites and encephalopathy. The albumin will be decreased because the liver usually makes albumin. The factors will be absent, so you won't be able to clot. You'll be theoretically anticoagulated, even though they still clot. The PT and PTT will be elevated. The liver processes bilirubin, so we can't do that anymore, so it'll be elevated. And the presence of ascites and encephalopathy is on a spectrum of not so bad to really bad. What you want to take away from this is if you have any one of these derangements from the liver, you have a 40% chance of death. If you have all five, 100% chance of death. And short of a liver transplant, there's not a whole lot you can do about this. And in all honesty, those patients who are cirrhotics, decompensated with ascites and encephalopathy, generally don't get elective procedures unless they're very, very minimal. Or again, they're emergent and they would die without them. Child's PUC patients, don't go to surgery, they're going to die. But speaking of albumin, nutrition is also really important for surgery. Not so much for surviving the surgery itself, but for healing afterwards. And people who are at risk for malnutrition are going to be those who lost 20% of their body weight in the last three months, those with an albumin less than three, and those who fail a skin energy test. 
Now you have to make sure that this low albumin is a product of malnutrition and not a product of liver disease. So the way you can do that is by getting a pre-albumin and a CRP. Other proteins in the body. Albumin is a surrogate for other proteins. If the albumin is low and the pre-albumin and CRP are low, then you don't have enough protein in your body and you need to add protein. But if the albumin is low and the pre-albumin and the CRP are normal, then it's a problem with making albumin. It's a liver problem. Also worth noting, pre-albumin changes before albumin. And pre-albumin does not turn into albumin. It's just the thing that happens to come before albumin on the gel when you run it out. In the same way, skin energy testing assesses do you have enough immunoglobulins, which are proteins, to form an allergic reaction. You essentially, it's TB. You inject some antigen, you get a reaction. That reaction means they have sufficient protein. Go ahead. If they fail the skin energy test, that is, they don't have a reaction, they don't have enough protein, and therefore cannot go to surgery because they won't heal. If you identify someone who has malnourishment, you want to replace the food. Oral is better than IV, and if you can wait, giving 10 days of replacement feeds is better than five. There's one last piece, and I say it because people miss it, even in real life. There's going to be some metabolic derangements that will absolutely contraindicate surgery, specifically diabetic ketoacidosis. Check a blood sugar the day of surgery, especially if it's elective. If their sugar is really high, really stop for a minute and pause. Because if they've got DKA, they're already acidotic, you take them to surgery, they're going to die. High blood sugar, probably dehydrated, going to die. So get the blood sugar under control prior to going to surgery. If you find DKA, what you'll do is IV fluids and IV insulin. If the blood sugar is out of control, give them some insulin, get it under control, and then take them to surgery. So what do we learn in this lecture? How to spot the things in the different organ systems that would preclude elective surgery. Most surgeries don't happen if any of these are broken, with the exception of cardiac surgery, that is a cabbage, or a stent, because it's worth the risk to reperfuse the, car, the heart in order to keep the rest of the organs alive. For the heart, look for reduced EF or recent MI. For the lungs, PFTs and ABG looking for either a high CO2 or a low O2. Smoking cessation eight weeks before the surgery, not inside that window. Liver disease, you got a bad liver, probably not going to surgery. And for nutrition, oral feeds are better than IV. Longer feeds is better than shorter, and you can use the skin energy test to assess if they have sufficient protein to heal. And lastly, if they're in DKA, fix the DKA before they go to surgery. That's pre-op evaluation.